at the time I was eating meat. So I said, okay, well, I don't eat red meat. I can eat chicken. And then I reduced the amount of chicken. Okay, now go vegetarian. And then I was like, okay, well, what's the bigger issue? Then I educated myself more on dairy. And so I did reductionism because that's what really helped me to become a long-term sustainable vegan. I'm your host, Adam Met, and today we're chatting with Isaias Hernandez, also known online as Queer Brown Vegan. Isaias started Queer Brown Vegan, an educational blog and social media account, just after graduating from Berkeley's environmental science program. Many of their classmates studied sustainability from a white Western perspective, so Isaias created this online space to show that environmental and human rights are inseparable. We talk about going vegan, promoting sustainable agriculture, and building a climate-conscious community. A quick reminder that we're planting a tree for every person who subscribes to this podcast, so make sure to hit that subscribe button. And without further ado, here is Isaias Hernandez on Planet Reimagined. And I'd love to just dive right in. How has your queer identity intersected with your obvious passion for environmentalism? Thank you so much for asking that question. So as a queer person of color myself, my identity really intersects with the work I do because I mainly advocate for frontline communities. And when we talk about frontline communities and the characteristics of who exactly are these people, queer and trans people are one of the most vulnerable groups to be affected by the climate crisis. And so my identity in understanding how my queerness has always been seen as not normal or presented in a way that is you're mentally ill, I really fought those harmful rhetoric and to truly reclaim what it means to be queer, right? To be free, to be fluid, but to be very harmonious in nature. And we've seen this with ecological practices, especially with different species being animal species, right? There's different relationships that animals have with their own kingdom and with different interwebs of connections. And so that is one of the really main aspects is that I want people to understand that Queerness isn't just about the rainbow flag. It's more about being able to live in this multidimensional issue world that we live in order to really be a better advocate for not just ourselves, but our communities. And to reaffirm the ideas that if we are talking about disaster relief programs, that we also include queer and trans communities that often are displaced by climate events and making sure that they don't face either violence when entering the refugee camps and that they have the equitable resources that they need to survive. That's incredible. And this kind of goes into the, the next thing I want to talk about, which is your incredible platform that you've built, which is Queer Brown Vegan. I'm curious, kind of building off of the last thing we were talking about, why was it important to tie your identity to the title of this platform? Yeah, I think it was the most important thing for me to tie into my platform because I didn't want to hide who I was. Many of the times when I was in academic spaces, in undergrad, I always hid my sexuality with professors or graduate students. But then I realized how much of a disservice I was doing to myself because I met other queer undergraduate students that were doing research. I met other future students of color feeling embarrassed to enter the environmental field because of their identity. And so I didn't want people to ever feel ashamed that everyone comes in different colors and identities. 
And so part about being queer for me is to really represent for LGBT youth out there to not feel ashamed of who they are and to really own who they are. That's incredible. And you brought up school as one of these places where you felt that you needed to hide yourself. I did a little bit of research about the work that you did in school. And one of the papers that you wrote really stuck out to me because it is about urban farming practices. And I've done a bunch of research in the urban farming space. And there, probably more than many other places, bringing in all different types of stakeholders is vitally important to success. So can you talk a little bit about the work you did in urban farming when you were in school? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I really wish I could have worked more on that thesis because that <laughs> was within a year. And as an undergrad, that's obviously not feasible for any student. But what I did back at UC Berkeley, I looked into working at the UC Giltract Farm. And so what we were trying to look at is food insecurity, social injustices, and education. And primarily many University of California students, I believe around one fourth of them have reported to be food insecure. Looking into solutions in addressing food insecurity, right? There's different ways that we can get food through donations, through working through local stores, but there's already available resources that are owned by the university that are not currently being used as much to its efficiency. And so I examined this plot of land that was used back in the 80s and 90s for agricultural research for scientists, especially during the development of agribusiness. And so a lot of the farms that were used back then were used for research, which is great. But later on, they, that, those majors became a little bit unpopular. They transformed. They had new research labs available. And so those plots of land became a little bit unavailable. What I realized is that this guilt track farm that I had studied, I had not even known about it when I entered undergrad. I learned about it junior year of college. And so when you realize that this place actually grows food, it feeds the community locally, and it also asks students to come and volunteer and you get to feed yourself, I realized that many of the undergrads were never taught this. And so I talked to the work study department at UC Berkeley, trying to say, like, can we create jobs off of this using, you know, the financial aid that low-income students of color get, you'd be able to get paid and, you know, it doesn't cost more for the university. And unfortunately, due to policies and the land being sold, ultimately, this is why UC Berkeley didn't invest. And the reason for this is because they knew that there would be more public investment to protect the farm, even though it's already been sold off. To developers. And so this is one of the reasons why I did the research is because I realized that in this city in Emeryville next to Berkeley, there were low income students of color in elementary schools that were already facing food insecurity. So I wanted to really tie in all those relationships to see how we can build a movement. But unfortunately, during that time, there was a lot of arrests that happened two years prior to this uprising of this movement. And so those students graduated. And so what do you do when there's new students every year, right? Even when I left, my legacy of doing some work there is gone. And so in trying to talk more with institutions, I developed a relationship with Berkeley Food Institute to give my research out and to make it public for other students or graduate students that may need a little bit more information or data to start their own projects in order to help the farm in some way. But due to the pandemic, I think that it's also really made it less available, less aware and less invested for students to be helping in the farm. 
Sure, and I would also make the argument that it's not just the pandemic, that academic institutions really have this silo approach where they keep research within this silo, and it makes it really hard for activists and advocates to take that research and translate it into something really accessible and actionable. So my next question is, you are, for all intents and purposes, an expert in what you just talked about in this area, and you've done the research. So much of academia and a lot of health experts, agriculture experts would say, oh, you just went to undergrad. That's not enough for you to be an expert in this. And yet you've created a platform where you're communicating these things to a much larger audience than any of these so-called experts would ever be able to reach. So my question is, when you have such a level of expertise in something like this, how do you figure out the right way to communicate it to a wider audience so they don't get bogged down in so much of the details that they can't really take action on? Yeah, I really love that. One thing that I always emphasize in my community is to respect indigenous wisdom and knowledge as science and to also honor your, your lived experiences as part of that science. Because when I was in academia, I either had the educator that was very intelligent in the system itself, but did not know how to communicate it to people. And so this is where I would get confused too, as an educator myself, trying to understand what they were trying to say, and then also reading the research that I was forced to do as an undergrad. Number two is the people that necessarily are not wanting to challenge themselves to understand that many of these systems are interconnected. And so what I present in my community is a very intro level into those topics so then they could start to understand and start to be more curious on the subject because the more and more that people are introduced to subjects they're more willing to be curious they're more willing to ask questions and they're more willing to be wrong and to learn and so that is one of the most important phases in many people's systems online is that they want to learn and because it's not a traditional classroom setting they're more likely to open up, they're more likely to say what's on their mind rather than being in front of the professor and being scared that they may be marked down or made fun of other peers. And they're willing to do that with me. And I think that's part of a reason that I wanted to really stray away from academia a bit and to bring these localized systems because at the same time, I do not think that you need to pay thousands of dollars for an institution to teach you this when it should really be available for everyone, regardless of who you are. Sure. And my favorite thing about what you just said is that people should not be afraid to be wrong. And also, I would add to that, that people should not be afraid to say, I don't know. It's kind of become a taboo thing, which is very strange to me. But when people have the confidence to say, I don't know the answer to that, I tend to respect them so much more than somebody who would just say, oh, yeah, and make up an answer because so much of what we see, especially in our political world today, is people just making up answers to things that they know nothing about. So the fact that you created this community where people are feeling comfortable to actually ask the questions and say, I'm not sure about this, please help me learn this, is, is really incredible.
Definitely. And I really love the idea of pushing the I don't know, because that shows that you're willing to unlearn and relearn. And there's different stages of our learning. And there's no such person that I've ever met in my academic life that was always right. They've either made mistakes on their formulas or mistakes on the paper. I've made mistakes on my data. Like it's normal. And I think it's one of the things we need to normalize that it's okay to make mistakes or you don't know things. Absolutely. Okay, I want to dive into a few more technical subjects. So you are zero waste, or at least attempting to be fully zero waste, and you are vegan. Now, to a lot of the people listening, to take those steps might be a complete 180 degree shift in their lives. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your first steps towards being zero waste and being vegan, and if there are any things that you can suggest for people to take small steps if they can't get there in one big leap. Yeah, I absolutely love those questions. So the very first story I will share is veganism because I transitioned to veganism first. One thing that is free out there is education, right? There is so much more resources to find out about our globalized food systems and primarily a lot of the meat that we source comes primarily from industrial meat. Yes, there's local farms that do exist, but a lot of us, even myself, when I used to eat meat, would source it just from the industrial and the grocery store, you know, I have it. I tell people that in understanding the history, it challenges them to really understand, you know, where do I see myself in this movement? Because you're not asking anyone to buy products yet. You're not asking anyone to change yourself. You're saying, here is this information and let's discuss. I took an agricultural and food systems course in college and I learned about industrial agriculture. And, you know, I learned it's not the best conditions and it's really not good for the environment. But we delve deeper into those subjects of like, okay, well, what exactly happens to the animal? The animals are forcefully impregnated, they're slaughtered, undocumented farm workers have to work there illegally, having to get paid less than minimum wage no access to workers' unions, they have to fear deportation, and they receive a lot of physical inability movements through all those mechanized machinery that they have to use. And so this really broke my heart. And then you go deeper into the environmental impact, you know, the waterway streams being infected, air pollution being affected, and then low-income communities of color being poisoned by this air, and they're not able to do anything. And so then this becomes a humans and animal rights issue already. And so I tell people that this is one of the reasons that I stopped eating meat is that not to say I wanted to make a big difference, but this is a step that I said, okay, well, what is feasible for me to do? At the time I was eating meat. So I said, okay, well, I don't eat red meat. I can eat chicken. Like, let's just stick to one. And then I reduced the amount of chicken. And then I was saying, okay, now go vegetarian. And then I was like, okay, well, what's the bigger issue? Then I educated myself more on dairy, like cheese, yogurt, and milk. And, you know, challenged myself again to cut off one and one. And so I did reductionism because that's what really helped me to become a long-term sustainable vegan. And I think one of the issues that I see in veganism is that the phrase go vegan can sometimes be very, sometimes problematic, sometimes hard to deconstruct. And so I tell people, before we say that, I will add disclaimers. So first, let's just educate ourselves about it. Two, I always advocate for people to reduce. And number three is, yes, once you go vegan, 
start to look into ways of how you can support animal sanctuaries, policies like our taxes that go into subsidies for these food, providing low-income communities of color healthier types of food because, you know, local donations of churches, they give out a lot of meat and dairy and there's less fruits and vegetables. And like, why is that? We need to start asking questions about that. When it came to zero waste, I learned first about it as college of like, oh, you're just recycling. Like I did that growing up. As a low-income person of color, my family and I recycled cans in Los Angeles. I didn't really see it as sustainability. I was just saying, hey, this is how we make money and that's how a lot of street vendors do it. Like, let's go, you know? But when I learned more about zero waste, the definition for me came out from the Zero Waste International Alliance. It said that Yes, products to be consciously designed to fit the environment, which meant like, you know, plastic free or different types. But it also said that the corporations that are creating these types of products do not have a negative discharge to the land and to the communities, most specifically people of color. And so that's when I started to frame it through as an environmental justice lens is like zero waste is both an animal and human's right issue because one, plastic pollution is destroying ecosystems or animals. It's also killing the people who are protecting these ecosystems like indigenous communities. And so in the efforts of asking myself, okay, like where do I, where can I start? I looked into my own lifestyle, bathroom, kitchen, living room. What is the easiest thing to do? Bathroom, right? I don't eat my bathroom products. Easiest thing to do. Next thing is living room. I don't eat my living room products. Number three is the kitchen, right? Ideally, I still use plastic every day. Unfortunately, I don't have the option to really opt out. And so for me, I told myself, okay, well, it's really fun to do this lifestyle changes. And I think it's a really great challenge for people, but how can I get people to understand plastic pollution? Yes, is killing our ecosystem, but it's killing our people of color. And so in doing that, I you know learned more about documentaries about like you know, the story of plastic. Um, there's really great documentaries that came out a year ago um, about plastic pollution. And so I really told myself that these systems almost seem different, but in reality, they're interconnected. At the end of the day, we're all fighting for a better future, which is our planet. And that recognizes that one system is very bad, which is the petrochemical industry. And the other system is the industrial agriculture industry, which is really unethical and really unsustainable. It took me years to understand, yes, and I'm still understanding it. But at the end of the day, making these changes never hurt me. It instead empowered me to be a better person and to be a better environmentalist, but it did make me feel uncomfortable because that's what learning is about, is that you have to be uncomfortable sometimes to learn these subjects and say, oh, well, I, you know, I kind of do contribute to the system. At the same time, I'm not trying to place so much individual blame on someone, but rather telling them like, we all have internal shame, but let's turn that shame into accountability most specifically looking at these systems and these ind industries that are known to pollute and are profiting off of our bodies. So, so many things in there to unpack. You talked about using history as a way of educating people, and that kind of started to make me think about religion. And then Christianity is a really interesting story of how it grew in the U.S., specifically evangelicalism. It grew out of evangelizing, sharing and convincing others as to its benefits. Now, from my experience, I've seen some people in the vegan community and the vegan education movement have been accused of evangelizing veganism in their own right, saying anything less than vegan is terrible and that everyone should become vegan and that's the way that we're going to save the planet. And you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to hear some specific examples 
about how you ride that line of pushing people to learn and learn from history and then also act on things without being too strong so they still come back to you as a person who doesn't feel like they're being you know preached at as if it were a religion yeah i think the number one thing is i always tell people to recognize our unique places in this movement such as a who has the privilege to talk about these issues freely which means a lot of my perspective comes from western culture right here in the united states this is where i grew up so i'm able to talk more about these issues Number two is the larger systemic issue that is happening, right? What is it that is really depleting natural resources at a fast rate? To go against these systems is threatening the United States global GDP economy. And so in doing that is not really what you would say a radical or a unique thing. It's more about a justice-oriented lens. And in order to prevent this glorification of this is the one type of solution, I really tell people that if we really want a sustainable lifestyle, decentralizing this globalized food system, it's not normal for us to go to our grocery stores and to see, you know, dragon fruit now weekly there. That is not native in our region. That's not native in our state. And so in trying to think about these issues of people um, inserting themselves in different spaces and being like, you're not doing enough, is to ask themselves, if you are entering a space, how are you contributing and how are you unlearning? Because in the way that this system is set up, it is it favors those who are primarily on social media preaching about this issue to be able to have these options while meanwhile others are just trying to survive and live another day because this is how much of our system systemically oppresses people in different ways. So I think that in trying to push their messages, I always tell them to stay critical of themselves rather than critical of others. Because when you are critical of yourself and what you're saying and what you're putting out there, you're more willing to actually have these different types of conversations. And instead of people saying, you didn't address this, you didn't say this, you didn't do this, you can step back and be like, here are some of the ways that we can approach these things, asking these types of questions, donating to these organizations, following these people for more information. And so this kind of presents this more, this circular lens rather than this linear lens of like, this is the way to go. And this is the only right way to go because there is no such thing as a right way. And I believe that justice has different forms of how it presents solutions. And this is why I am always someone that is willing to sit down and listen and to really approach my work in a holistic lens rather than a singular variable issue. I, I love this approach and you articulated it so clearly. It's something that I struggle with a lot too, because in my academic work, I am a white male from the United States, but my academic work focuses on indigenous communities in Bangladesh, in Kenya, and in Canada, and indigenous communities as stakeholders to sustainable development projects. And so it's very difficult to figure out how much I should be saying, how much I can be saying. I always am figuring out ways to elevate the voices of the indigenous community. But at the same time, I've been working on this project for, you know, four years. That's going to end up being my PhD dissertation. And I want it to help as much as possible. But am I the person who's supposed to be saying, like, I came up with a great solution for this? 
figuring out the way you fit into the system is so important to continuously check yourself as a public educator. And I really appreciated that point because I relate to it. I know that people who are listening to this podcast who are trying to educate their friends and their families and even their schools and local communities, they need to understand how they fit into the larger conversation. So thank you for that. I do want to switch gears a tiny bit and talk specifically about regenerative agriculture um, because it is an incredibly important topic. And so it's an approach that brings so many different things together from crop rotation to composting, biochar, grazing, and other different types of practices in order to sequester carbon, limit water use, and increase the, the health of the soil. So this type of agriculture requires animal farming and the grazing of animals. But obviously it's not the same approach that is used in the traditional, you know, livestock industrial complex. I'm curious about your thoughts of the necessity of having animals for the success of regenerative agriculture and how that plays into your views on veganism. Yeah, that's a super great question. And I, that is something I will say that I'm actively still researching myself. But what I will say is that in college, I took an agroecology course. So that's when I learned of not having to use pesticides and herbicides. A professor told us, like, we don't really need that. Plants live harmoniously. And we did this research where we planted chard, lettuce, and arugula. And this way that we designed it is like crop rotation. It was a very unique way that I've never seen growing up. And we really learned about the fundamentally of how to take care of the land, but honoring that land, especially because who is able to really grow food. I respect indigenous wisdom and agriculture. As someone that comes primarily from the West, I have no relationship to the land. I benefit from this globalized food system. And so in terms of trying to deconstruct that, I do believe that supporting sustainable methods and systems that have been practiced for decades should be held. At the same time, I have met other vegans that do come from those communities saying that it's not sustainable. And well, it's not up to me to decide how that community is being charged. But if you're someone from that community that is able to present natural-based solutions or systems that do not require animals, then you should be consulting them, not me, because that's not my place to be entering those communities. Indigenous wisdom has always been doing this for so long. Well, what we're currently doing right now, industrialized way in, in a system like this is completely unethical and unsustainable for the earth. And so I, I guess I made a commitment wholeheartedly to commit only to industrialized systems, when it comes to regenerative ranching and different subjects, of course, I'm still researching that I'm still finding indigenous vegans out there that are probably introducing different types of systems that I do not know about. And so I think those conversations should be held by them, not me. But I really appreciate that question. No, absolutely. And that goes back to our two conversations that we've already had, which is one, knowing where you fit in in the conversation and also not being afraid to say that you need to do more research and that you don't know about something. So I really appreciate that. I wanna talk about your platform as a place to reach a collection of individuals. And in this movement, we talk a lot about individual responsibility and trying to figure out how important that is 
as opposed to corporate responsibility or policymaker responsibility. Now, you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier that agriculture is one of the most subsidized industries by the U.S. government. How do we take a platform like yours that has so much reach to so many individuals and mobilize them in order to make larger scale either corporate change or policy change? Absolutely love this. So I think that one, like you said, about building relationships, not just with activists on the ground, but teaming up with organizations. There's a really awesome organization called Youth Climate Save Movement that is focused on industrial agriculture. And a lot of their work is really to divest away from industrial farming, most specifically animal agriculture. And so in that case, a lot of these organizations have been doing this work for years, like Food Empowerment Project too, for example. And so my role as an educator is to hopefully empower those to take their own unique roles, whether it be activist, educator, model, photographer, videographer, poet, writer, whatever you are, take those skills and also amplify organizations because more likely these organizations are already struggling a bit with communication, trying to get people to their platforms or to get people to sign the petition. And so this is where influencers and content creators really do come in handy in the sense of like, we're bridge building, right? We're taking these people from the left bridge and moving them to the right bridge to more local and systemic change. And I think people don't necessarily always have to feel afraid because sometimes some people don't feel comfortable going to protests, unfortunately, or due to other reasons. And some people are like, I feel more confident setting a petition at my home and talking to my friends about it or my family members about it. And so I think it's all about creating these coalitions that exist within and also the valuing of these grassroots organizations that have been doing this work for years and decades and honoring their work too, because as someone like myself, right, you don't need to be a lawyer, you don't need to be a policy in Congress to make this large change. You can be that one person in your community advocating already in your city to divest away in some way. And that's what really sparks empowerment for people. So you touched on something that I find really interesting in the climate movement as a whole. And that's the balance in advocacy between getting people excited about something and scaring people and making people feel guilty about something. And both of them are very strong approaches. I'm curious on your platform, on Queer Brown Vegan, when you think about these two different areas, how do you approach both of them, trying to get people excited about joining the movement and also putting some guilt and fear into their minds? Yeah, I think that one way to think about this binary thinking, like I've been trying to challenge myself out of it, but I have always told my community that I tried to be very realistic in terms of injustices. I personally shared my story about what I grew up with and like why this made me passionate. And sometimes I do get angry about these issues because they really hit close to home. And that's my community. That's my parents. That's my loved ones. And so in trying to kind of balance the both positive and like the doom and gloom is that I tell people to really take the time to validate each and every of your emotions because that's what really is going to sustainably love yourself in the long term. And in order to really practice sustainable activism, 
I tell people, here are these different issues that I always present on a daily basis. Do I expect everyone to know everything? Absolutely not. What I expect is that at least you can say, here are a few things I'm very passionate about, and here are some things that I really want to do long-term. And so in trying to shift away from this like individual blame, I really tried to kind of present in a more global concept of like, here are these systems and these people in power and upholding oppressive and racist structure that we really do need to hold accountable rather than fighting ourselves of who's using a bamboo toothbrush and not, you know, like these are some of the things that we really want to do. Like, yes, maybe we can have that bamboo conversation for fun, you know, in some way. And so I tell people not to constantly feed themselves into reading these news and my content presents itself 50% education, 50% lifestyle, where we explore a lot of fun concepts, you know, make sustainability fun, make environmentalism interesting. Other half is here are some reality things that we do need to talk about it because we really cannot ignore racism. We cannot ignore these extractive systems that have hurt people of color, because when you do that, you're hurting me as a person of color that grew up in a community like this. And it's not controversial to advocate for human rights. It costs zero dollars here in the West. You don't need to be a human rights expert to know that you care about a person's well-being. It's a human right that everyone has access to clean air, water, and soil. It doesn't matter who you are, how you grew up, like everyone deserves it. It doesn't, it should not depend on your economic status, unfortunately. And so in trying to balance that, I would say that uh, my community is people that are really willing to learn with me. And I think that is what really holds them to ground is that sometimes they can share laughs and sometimes they can share sadness and scare. But I think the validation that I give them in their emotions to say, hey, I'm going through this too, allows them to be like, okay, I'm not alone in this. And so that kind of allows them to build a community online. That's amazing. So I have one more thing that I want to talk about with you and it kind of comes out of that. Your platform is built on social media, obviously. And you talked about figuring out all of these different emotions that you can tap into from your audience. Can you talk us through from the ideation phase through the troubleshooting phase to the creation phase to posting to reflecting on was that successful? Was that not successful? Can you talk us through the timeline of putting together a post that is for all intents and purposes a piece of public education. Yeah, I really love that. So one of the first things I generally do is I don't plan my content, unfortunately. So I do not plan what's going on in June, what's in July. I generally read a lot of books. And in a lot of the books, you know, I'm currently reading A Red Deal, An Indigenous Way to Save and Heal the Planet. I'm always learning new concepts. I'm always learning new terms. I talk to people from different areas and they tell me these different things that are happening to them. And so that I come to myself and ask, okay, what are things that I want to learn more about or ask people about? And so recently, you know, one way I thought about this is the idea of conservation, right? Here in the West, the way that we were taught, it almost seems as if Western science is more superior than indigenous science. And it almost seems that these researchers from these academic institutions are the only ones who can save these ecosystems. I learned about biocultural conservation. And so in the creation process of that, from ideation to I want to create this, 
I have to do a lot of research. So I use Sci-Hub in order to gain access to free research articles of the DOI because I'm not going to pay for a research article or I email the professors I've done research and be like, can I have your article? Cause I want to use it in my work. And so in that, in that sense, I really take the time to take notes about the research learn more about news articles and to really ask myself, okay, what are the main takeaways that if I was someone that was trying to learn about biocultural conservation, like what are some things that I should just know about? And I say, okay, well, social, biological, and economic. And these systems are intertwined because it's what kind of sustains an ecosystem. And the next part, I ask myself, okay, well, what does these values mean? Like, how does that translate? Well, it translates into understanding that the relationship of stakeholders needs to be within Indigenous communities. We cannot just say, here's an institution, here is a graduate student, they're the ones that know how to do everything. Let's ignore this community that's lived here. They probably don't know what's happening. And this is where we see issues with conservation. And so in recognizing that, I think a lot of people would change their minds about how they view conservation, not to say, conservation is a horrible thing because I used to say it. I don't like, I hate it. It's such a horrible thing, but I wasn't very specific the way that I was taught through a Western lens. And now I tell people I love conservation when it's focused on biocultural and biodiversity, because this is what really we need to talk about in terms of like designing it. Right. I use a lot of color coding. I used to color code my notes all throughout school because that is the best way I learned. And a lot of Gen Zs and a lot of the population these days, I believe 40 to 50% of us are visual learners. So in terms of that, I asked myself, okay, what are the easiest ways to kind of attract someone to think about it? When I think about biocultural conservation, I think orange. I don't know why, but I just think about it. Maybe some people think green, but I really try to simplify it in one paragraph for each slide. Like let's first talk about, you know, the issue of conservation, like why do some people hate it? Next slide talks about biocultural conservation. The next slide is like, okay, well, what does that mean for stakeholders? Next slide goes into how can we be better advocates for biocultural conservation? And so these are kind of a mini guide, I would say like a pocketbook for someone to introduce themselves to the concept. So if they're invested in that field of conservation and wanna make a difference in that field, they're able to really reference it and look more into the work and ask these questions and be better researchers, be better scientists to be like, I could do better on this. And so the last thing I'd say in the publication, like how it went, I don't necessarily always measure likes and comments as an indicator for success. I rather look at the people that have shared things with me either privately through that post or sometimes some of those comments it doesn't matter if it's, you know, less than five people only commented and they just ask these questions because those five people are then going to take this information and spread it across their networks when whatever work they're doing. And that's what really inspires different environmentalists to be holistic in their work. Absolutely. Everyone must go check out your platform. It is incredible. Queer Brown Vegan is amazing. And the videos are really exciting and also informational. And I really like that you describe yourself as an educator because we need more different forms of educators out there. Thank you so, so much for taking the time today. I so appreciate it. It was amazing to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much again, Adam, for having me. I truly appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. 
If you want to support this podcast, please visit sustainablepartnersinc.org slash donate. Since we are a nonprofit, any little bit of funding helps us to bring you more episodes like this one. Today's episode would not have been possible without our amazing team. Producer and editor, Shelby Kaufman, and associate producer and engineer, Sophie Yu. I'm your host, Adam Met, and thanks for listening to Planet Reimagined.